the life and epistles of Peter this morning. I think we have uh, today and then two more lessons in this quarter before we'll switch over to a new topic. And uh, we'll do a little bit of a review this morning of things we haven't talked about uh, in a little while. So we've been studying um, the epistles of Peter, First and Second Peter, but also looking at events throughout his life that may have informed or played into um, what he chose to write about. So the names of Peter, he goes by several names throughout the Bible. So Peter is what we know of him most commonly, um, but that is probably not his birth or his given name. Anybody recall what it's likely to be the given or birth name of the Apostle Peter? Not Cephas, that's going to be, we'll come to that one in a moment. Yeah, Simon or Simeon. So most likely Simon or Simeon, uh, different spellings of the same name, are going to be the birth name of Peter the Apostle. Um, and then we have recordings in Matthew chapter 16 of uh, Jesus uh, speaking with Peter and the famous line, upon this rock I will build my church. And um, I think I gave away the answer to this question here, but uh, what does the word Peter mean? Rock, yeah. So Peter comes from the Greek word uh, petros or petra, which means a rock or a stone. And Jesus used this kind of play on words to um, uh, provide Peter with the keys to the kingdom. And at that point in time, he kind of renamed Simeon as Peter. And oftentimes we see the names put together as Simon Peter, his given name, and then the new name that Christ provided for him. Uh, now, Linda, I think, mentioned this one a moment ago. So um, not as commonly, but there are a few instances where Peter is given another name. And which refers to the Aramaic term for rock. And that name is Cephas, exactly. So Simon, Simeon, Peter, and Cephas are all names referring to the same individual. All right. And we've talked about um, one of the themes of Peter's writings kind of in general. Um, which interestingly kind of parallels themes for the writings of the Apostle John and also the Apostle Paul. And does anybody recall what is a one word that we can kind of sum up the writings of John with? Love, exactly. John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. Um, he uses the word love numerous times in his epistles. Um, he wrote a lot about love. All right, and then Paul, especially in the books of Romans and Galatians, wrote a lot about what spiritual gift referred to at the very end of 1 Corinthians 13? Faith, exactly. So John wrote a lot about love. Paul wrote a lot about faith. And Peter wrote a lot about a third spiritual gift referred to at the very end of 1 Corinthians 13. And what is that? Hope. hope, exactly. Faith, hope, and love, these three remain, but the greatest of these is love. That's what Paul wrote at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. And each of those three Christian characteristics, if you will, are a major theme of the writings of these three individuals. So Peter's epistles are a lot about hope. Hope of getting through 
the troubles, the tribulations that Christians would endure. Um, he doesn't use the word hope necessarily by itself too often, but there's a general theme about hope getting through the trials that Christians would be um, enduring. All right, and then uh, we have the slide that I've been putting up every class period just to remind us about um, the themes of these two epistles. First to Peter was much about dangers coming from outside of the church. Largely that would be in the form of persecutions by Nero. And I left one blank up here. Um, what is a word that is used numerous times, uh, 14 times I believe, throughout the book of First Peter? Goes along with trials and testing, Christians were going to be persecuted, but they were going to suffer. The, the word Peter uses a lot, 14 times in that first epistle, is suffer. And then 2 Peter is largely about preparing Christians for um, adversities they would face from within the church in the form of false teachers, blasphemers, heresies. And he uses a word uh, 16 times to uh, indicate the best way to counter or to combat these heresies and false teachers. And what is that word? Knowledge, exactly. So um, suffering is used 14 times in 1 Peter and knowledge or know is used 16 times in 2 Peter. Uh, two key themes from these two epistles. All right, and then uh, here's our timeline uh, looking at different events in the life of Peter. Um, and we've talked about uh, Peter was married at some point in time, presumably during his early life, um, because we know that Christ healed his mother-in-law. Um, Matthew chapter uh, 16, um, Christ gave Peter the new name of Peter and said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. Uh, Peter experienced his own persecutions. He was arrested at least three times uh, during his uh, early ministry following the uh, birth of the church. Um, he was appointed as an elder. Um, again, we're not sure where. It could have been in Jerusalem. It could have been in Rome where we think he spent the latter part of his years. Um, he did serve the office of elder as he alludes to in his writings um, and then much of his writings that we've been studying are leading up to this great persecution that took place by Nero. And it's, we think, at least during that persecution that he ultimately was going to be killed and become a martyr for Christ. We studied last week about his encounter with Cornelius and his opening up the gospel to the Gentiles. And then today we're going to look at one more big event in Peter's life, and that is the transfiguration. Um, we'll study Matthew's account of this, but it is, it is recounted in a few different uh, Gospels. Uh, but we'll be looking at that um, today. Um, a major event that Peter witnessed, all right, is the transfiguration. And he's going to speak to that very specifically in our text for today. All right, so our, our text for today is Christian Assurance. We'll be looking at the latter half of 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 16, and then finishing out, our, uh, finishing out there chapter 1. So as we said, um, 
Second Peter is written um, with two lenses in mind. One is that he's preparing the Christians for false teachers and for misinformation that was going to be spread. But it's also written as his final address to the Christians. Uh, we read last week, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to be able at any time to recall these things. Uh, Peter knew that his days were numbered. Uh, he knew that his end on the earth was very soon. And this is in many ways his farewell address. This is his last chance to offer encouragement and warnings and preparational words for the early church. Um, Paul did a very similar thing um, in 2 Timothy. If you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul writes to his protege Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Just like Peter, Paul also knew that his days were very numbered when he wrote these words to Timothy. And he's offering to Timothy a final word of encouragement. And that's what Peter's doing right here. He knows that he is about to die. And he's going to offer these words of encouragement, these, uh, these words to tell the early Christians to hold fast and be sure, be certain of their faith, of their assurance and he says, you know, in verse 10, our, our theme for last week, you know, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So last week he begins this epistle with this, this admonition to make your calling, make your election sure. And then he's going to follow that with our text for today with two specific reasons. All right, Peter's going to give two specific reasons or justifications, evidences that the Christians can use to be certain of their faith. All right, why should they make their calling and election sure? He's going to issue two different justifications or evidences that they can use to know that Christ is real, their faith is founded and they can be sure of their own salvation. So let's jump in now to verse 16 and look at this first evidence, which is going to be eyewitness testimony. So 2 Peter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. What does that sound like to you? What's he speaking about? Yeah, the transfiguration. 
So let's turn over and talk about that transfiguration. Let's learn about this event that he's referencing here in 2 Peter. So turn over to Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to read the account of Christ's transfiguration, at least Matthew's account of it. So notably, this is pretty soon after Christ has renamed Peter. So Matthew 16 and verse 18, in that, that, that area of Scripture, we had the account of Jesus renaming him Peter and saying, Upon this rock I'll build my church. So we are not long after those events. So let's start there in chapter 17 and verse 1, and we'll read through this account of the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. All right. So it's interesting that uh, Peter uses this account as eyewitness testimony to provide a very tangible example of justification for belief in Christ. You know, Peter witnessed many things throughout his time with Jesus. Over three years, he saw Jesus perform countless miracles. He saw the crucifixion. He saw the resurrection. But he's going to use the transfiguration of Jesus as his tangible example to write about here in 2 Peter. Any thoughts about why that might be? What do you think is notable about the transfiguration? That Peter would have chosen that to write about as an example. All right. In what way? All right. So uh, Kevin said it's the basis for all that we believe, right? So you think about the transfiguration. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So all throughout history, you know, the Old Testament, you've got Moses representing the law, which was God's covenant with man. And you have the prophets, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, like all these individuals who spoke 
and prophesied about Christ. And at this point in time, Jesus is indicating to these three apostles, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, that I am the fulfillment of the law, which Moses represented, and the prophets, which were represented by Elijah. So he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So it was a significant event to give a very vivid uh, representation of Christ being that fulfillment. Peter, think, think about this as well. Peter is trying to make the argument in his writing that he was an eyewitness to Christ. Now, he saw Christ do many things. He was an eyewitness to, you know, countless miracles and events. But he chose this one for a couple of reasons, perhaps. Um, one, Peter was not there alone. All right, eyewitness testimony can be problematic. We can not remember accurately what we saw. We can remember what we saw, but maybe we saw something incorrectly. There's always some uncertainty about eyewitness testimony, you know, in the court system, for example, because we're humans and we make mistakes. We don't remember things correctly all the time. But Peter wasn't alone. He was with James and John. So there were at least three different people who were eyewitnesses to this event. So there is cooperation, right? James and John could corroborate what Peter saw, which gives more credence to the event. It's also a combination of visual and auditory, right? Peter saw Christ transfigured. He saw Moses, he saw Elijah, but he also heard something very important. What did he hear? Exactly. He heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So two senses at least were um, stimulated by this event. The visual sense of seeing these things transpire, but also hearing, right? They heard this voice from heaven. You've got multiple people seeing and hearing the same thing, and you've got them seeing and hearing from different sources. So Peter perhaps chose this event to write about in 2 Peter because there's lots of, um, uh, what's the word here, cooperating evidences from different sources, different senses, different people, to give some credence to the fact that this was an important event and it was what he chose to use as evidence for his uh, writings here in 2 Peter as evidence for the assurance they can have um, in their faith in Christ. Um, the, the latter part of what we read here, beginning in verse 9, um, he says, They were coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? In that case, they are asking about this prophecy from the book of Malachi. At the very end of Malachi, chapter 4 and verse 5, this is the very last writing, the last book of the Old Testament. These were the parting words to the Jews 
before that big intertestamental period of silence. And Malachi wrote in chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So Peter's making this link between what Malachi wrote about Elijah coming back, and then he just saw Elijah on the mountain with Christ, and he says, why do people say we must see Elijah first? And that's when Jesus clarifies that prophecy is not about Elijah himself, but rather John the Baptist. Elijah was going to be a representation of, or John the Baptist would be a representation of Elijah when he came back. Exactly. It, 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 the prophecy of Malachi and John the Baptist fulfilling that prophecy provided one more link between the Old Covenant and what would become the New Covenant. Prophecies about Christ help with that link. Prophecies about John the Baptist help with that link, linking the Old and the New Covenants together. Okay, so turning back over now to uh, 2 Peter. So he says there in verse 16, the latter part, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So we got his first reason to have Christian assurance is this eyewitness testimony, right? He's got the visual and he's got the auditory, the hearing part of these events there in um, the transfiguration. Um, there are other instances where Peter references this idea of eyewitness testimony. Uh, we read from Acts 10 last week when Peter was preaching to Cornelius. In Acts 10 verse 39, he says, and we, are I, sorry, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He also wrote, in, or he also said in Acts chapter 5, in verse 30 and 32, this is one of the times he was arrested, and he is speaking to the Jewish leaders who had arrested him and the other apostles. Um, Acts 5, in verse 30, he says, uh, this is Peter speaking, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And then John also spoke about the importance of this eyewitness testimony. Um, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, he wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. One of the purposes of Christ having these apostles, these 12 men, was to literally watch him do these events throughout his life so they could be eyewitnesses to what happened after Christ left. After he was crucified, was raised, and then ascended, there was no more eyewitness testimony because there was nothing to witness. Christ was gone. 
But you had these 12 men plus everyone else who was around Jesus, his larger disciple group, who for some time could keep on speaking and telling about these things that took place. It provided some continuity between you know, the three years of Christ's ministry and you know, the next hundred years, or at least the lifetime of those people who walked around with Christ. But then also, even the apostles kept on performing miracles, right? I mean, after Jesus ascended, the apostles kept on performing miracles. So there was some remaining testimony of those events. Didn't involve Jesus, but still involved miraculous activity. So there's a situation created to provide some continuity of events and some justification for faith, even after Christ would be going. Okay, so let's now switch gears and look at the second example that Paul gives, or sorry, Peter gives for belief. And that's going to be prophecy fulfilled. So let's start reading in verse 19, and then we'll finish off this chapter. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. We're going to come back to that right now in a minute, but he says right here already, Eyewitness testimony is great, but we have something more sure. So this next thing is even more important. The prophetic word. To which you will do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all. That no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the second reason, Peter says, that we can have our calling and election sure. The second reason that we can be certain of our faith is the prophetic word or the prophecies fulfilled. Peter spoke a lot about prophecy. Um, Turn over to Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we have obviously the recounting of the events on the day of Pentecost when uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon the apostles. Peter preached that first gospel sermon there in Jerusalem And there was a large increase in the church. It was born essentially on that day. But during Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, several different times he's going to allude to prophecy as why these Jews should know and believe in Christ and his messiahship. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's going to quote Joel chapter 2 in this next few verses. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy... 
and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter's going to allude back to the prophet Joel to explain these events taking place where the Spirit is following upon the apostles and they're doing incredible things. Prophecy fulfilled. You skip down just a few verses. Beginning in verse uh, 24. God raised him up, speaking of Jesus, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, now he's going to give some prophetic reason or justification for Christ being raised from the dead by quoting from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades to let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So he's quoted from Joel. Now he quotes from David, the king, who was also a prophet, in um, this Psalm of David in Psalm 16. Skip down just a few more verses. All right, let's read starting in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he is providing some commentary or explanation for what this prophecy actually meant that David uttered when he wrote or when he penned in that 16th Psalm. And even going back, I can read, uh, this is not quoted necessarily, but the prophet Nathan spoke to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And I want to read a few verses here from 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is Nathan speaking to David, more prophecy about Jesus being a descendant of David. And the stripes that are mentioned there are referencing his, his uh, persecution, his, um, you know, the events leading up to his ultimate crucifixion when he was beaten and striped. 
Peter used a lot of prophecy when he spoke and when he wrote to people because he knew the importance of prophecy fulfilled as, in fact, evidence of Christ, Messiahship, and as reason why we can have assurances of our faith. Turn back over now to uh, 2 Peter. So verse 19, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word. Why is prophecy fulfilled more important than eyewitness testimony? Why does he say that the prophetic word is something more sure than the eyewitness testimony he just spoke to? Shane. I think you're, you're right on the nose there. Peter knows, and the people he's writing to also know, just what Shane just stated, that eyewitness testimony is problematic because we're humans and we are fallible. We remember things incorrectly. We get things jumbled up in our heads. Peter knows that, and while his testimony about what he saw during Christ's time on earth is reason to have assurance, the written prophetic word is even better because it can be tested for authenticity. It can be tested for accuracy. Peter knows that, and he wants the people to know that they have both of these to rely upon. Not just what he saw and wrote about, but what all these people wrote about. Nathan, David, Joel, Elijah, Elisha, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Malachi, right? All these prophets that have written hundreds of years prior to events that came true. This is the better evidence for these people, but for us as well, right? We don't have a Peter to go to and say, tell me about the transfiguration. What did you see? We are chronologically too far removed from the early church, right? There are no more eyewitnesses for us. So while the early church did have Peter and James and John and Philip to go to and, and hear the words, Peter also knew that wouldn't last forever. At some point in time, those eyewitnesses would all die away. And so we, now 2,000 years removed, we have no eyewitnesses to go to. But the prophetic word remains. We still have something tangible to base our faith and our assurances upon. Linda, you had your hand up? Exactly. The word endures forever. So that's why, at least in one way, why it's even better, more superior to the eyewitness testimony. Um, let's see. We got about five or so minutes left. So um, some of the writings he uh, puts in here are really, uh, really beautiful words. Um, 
So first of all, in verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophetic word. And then he says, I like this a lot, you would do well to pay attention. Uh, he throws that in there as a little, you know, like kind of a somewhat under the radar, but just as an encouragement, you would do well to pay attention to this. Shane. My version says, fully confirmed. Fully confirmed. Yeah, I like that a lot. And that, that next phrase there is really nice. As to a lamp shining in dark place. Right? These events around Jesus and his life, to us, they're kind of a dark, shadowy corner because we didn't see them. We don't know exactly what happened. But this right here, if I can pick this up without making a mess, this is our light. Right? This is going to illuminate those events. We don't have any body to illuminate them for us because <clears throat> they've all died away. But we have the enduring written word which can continue to be a light to illuminate those events so that we can see what happened even without Peter or John or any of the other apostles to physically tell us what took place. And then, you know, the, the last verse there, verse 21, um, we uh, reference a lot when thinking about an you know, inspiration of the, of the gospel. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is also really important. So eyewitness testimony is, comes from man, and it's obviously fallible. Well, written words also come from man, and they're also fallible, right? I've got my notes right here for class today, and I already found some mistakes in them when I typed them up. Because what we write is just as fallible as what we may say from our testimony. So what makes the word so much more infallible? It's exactly what he writes right here. No prophecy, or think no written words, was ever produced by the will of man. So it wasn't men that penned these words. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is really why the prophetic word is so much more important. Because it's not men speaking, it is God speaking. All right, the, the prophets, the writers of the Bible, all those authors were not writing of their own accord because that would be fallible, but they are writing the words of God. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The word inspiration means God breathed. The Spirit breathed into them, and what they wrote, therefore, was, in fact, infallible. That's why... The words we have right here are the best reason to have that Christian assurance. Because not only was it men writing, but it was men who were inspired by God writing. Any questions or comments? Bill. That, yeah, that's, 
Yeah, it's not, it's not up to us to let other people tell us, but it's up to us to do the work ourselves. And we have, you know, we have right here just what Peter spoke about or what he wrote about. You know, we have the prophetic word right here provided to us. This is God's inspired word with everything we need to have the Christian assurance that Peter's writing about here in this, in this book. Absolutely, because what we say is fallible, but what God says, that's what's infallible. All right, um, I'm going to quickly read that first verse of chapter 2. It's just a prelude to next week. First word, but. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. All that he's written so far is about the knowledge, the truth. But we're going to pivot next week to the other side of the coin, the false teachings, the false doctrine, the heresies. And we'll dive into that in a week from today. So thank you for your attention.